All right, well, with that, we'll go move to the sermon. And so if you've been with us, you know we are working through the genealogy of Jesus and really paying special attention to the women who are mentioned. And so it would be unusual for women to be mentioned in a genealogy. And so five of them are mentioned, and in particular, it seems that they are there um, to really serve as uh, a sign of what God was doing all through the years leading up to Jesus. And so we begin Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. This is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at these women who show up in genealogies, and we're looking at them as a portrait of grace, that these women in Jesus' genealogy They tell the story of God's grace to humanity that culminates in Jesus. And so God had sent his grace into the world through Jesus, but it had been a long history. And so by looking at the women, we get to see the different types of stories that led up to Jesus. And so just recapping, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of Tamar. In a way, that's the story of our family almost didn't exist. And so I remember great desperation, Tamar, to bear a son, but God was gracious to provide even in a very messy situation. And then last week, we looked at Rahab. It's really a story of how we came to live here, and so it's about God's grace to include such an unlikely person, which he simply believed in God's promises. And so this morning, we come to Ruth, and it's really a combination of two types of stories. One, the how we met story, and then also the we didn't always have it this good story. You probably heard that one from your parents or grandparents. And so Ruth is a story. It's a story about how she and Boaz met, and so in a way, a love story, although maybe not the way you think. And Ruth is also a story about God bringing fullness into a place of emptiness. It was probably written around the time of King David or King Solomon, which is important because that was really the pinnacle of the history of the people of Israel in terms of kind of socio-political atmosphere. And so at that time, it really everything was going so well. And so the story of Ruth is probably written down so that the people would remember that it was God's grace that got them to the place. And so it's a story about sadness and emptiness and how God's grace works to provide fullness. And really, that's what we need. You know, we can understand God's grace kind of in the big picture in the world or even in particular in Jesus. But don't you need grace in your life as well? Don't you need to know that there is enough grace from God to give grace to your story, to your family? And so that's what we have in these portraits of grace. All right, so that's it for the introduction. We're going to be looking at the story, and we're going to be reading Ruth, at least a good portion of it, as we go through. Um, We do have a lot before us, and so uh, my prayer in preparing this is really that um, there's two ways we could approach this. One, we have our our work cut out for us, and so we fear how long the sermon could be. All right. Or two, we have our work cut out for us, and so we're excited to see all that God would give us. Okay? 
I'm really hoping the second one is true, and so let's pray and ask for God's help towards that. Father, we do ask that you would be with us, that you would, we know your word is alive, and so would you make it alive for us in particular? Would you help us to see your grace in this particular way through the story of Ruth so that we could be enriched by you? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the story of Ruth, we're going to work our way through, and we're going to be looking at it really through um, kind of the idea of three different scenes, that Ruth is a short story, and so it's really broken up into a couple different scenes, almost like you would watch a, a stage play. And so really, the first scene is what sets the stage, and really, the first scene is about practical hopelessness, that this is a story where the setting is practically hopeless. And so Ruth begins chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so Ruth, it's a short story, and it begins with The same as a lot of stories do with the sort of once upon a time setting. In many ways, it's a a story about a normal Israelite family. And so you have mom, dad, two sons. They're from the town of Bethlehem. One thing we'll see in the story of Ruth is that the names have particular meaning and really drive the story along. And so Bethlehem, it means house of bread. But there's a problem. There is no bread because there's a famine in the land. We see that the time of this story is in the days when the judges ruled. As you may know, the time of the judges was a very up and down, a very crisis time for the Israelites. They had entered the promised land, but the kingdom hadn't been established yet. And so it was a time of huge ups and downs as the people struggled with their identity and their security in God. And so they would go through great turmoil and rebellion, and then God would send a judge to really save them and to set things right again, only for that cycle to be repeated over and over again. And so in the story of Judges, there's two refrains that get repeated. One, there was no king in Israel. No king. Two, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the story of Ruth, it must be set during that time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because it seems that they are under God's judgment. They had, under, they had entered into the promised land. Remember, it was described as a place flowing with milk and honey. But yet, as their moral condition slipped into decay, God made the physical land match their spiritual state. And so there's a famine of bread to match a famine of faith. And so what does dad do? Verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. In some ways, it was a very practical decision, and so no food in Israel, food in Moab, let's go there. It makes sense, but also it's a very strange thing to do, to leave the land of promise, to go to the land of Moab, and so Moab, they had mixed relations with Israel, sometimes friendly, but more often enemies or antagonists, and most importantly of all, Moab was a place of great spiritual corruption, that They worship the many Canaanite gods, even to the point of sacrificing their children. And so you can imagine if you're a family man wanting a future for your family, Moab would be a strange place to go. And so much of the story of Ruth is told in subtlety. It's a small details. 
And so the move to Moab, it's not condemned, but if you're the reader, it would have been eye-raising. And so one pastor says it this way. He says the, the story of Ruth, it's a beautiful story set against a dark backdrop. A beautiful story set against a dark backdrop. And so there in Moab, the story does quickly turn from bad to worse. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, her sons, they take Moabite wives. Once again, it's not explicitly condemned, but everyone knew this was a a no-no. Verse 5, but Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons, nor her husband. And so it's just such a short introduction, and here we already are at the, the situation where Naomi has been left empty. Did you notice what happened? So no bread in Bethlehem has now gone to no family, no future, no name in Moab. Husband and sons are dead. No grandchildren, even though there was 10 years of marriage. And no names. The woman was left without. You see, it's a very dark backdrop. In light of that, we get a slight glimmer of light, a little bit of hope. Verse 6, Then she, Naomi, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is one of only two times in the story of Ruth where the narrator tells us explicitly that God does something, that he acts. It's part of the style of the story that God is there, but often we have to be sensitive to see him at work. And so here it is explicit, though, that God had visited his people and given them food. But did you notice the problem? The family was visiting somewhere else. You see, they were visiting Moab. They were sojourning there. It's really they were on a visit. But did you notice that they had remained there? It had been a long visit. And so as they were visiting Moab, God had visited his people. But even though there's this glimmer of hope, Naomi doesn't take it all that hopefully. As she prepares to leave, she instructs her daughters-in-law to return to their families so they could find new Moabite husbands. It's really the practical thing to do. It makes sense. When Orpah and Ruth, they argue that they should go as well, listen to Naomi's response, verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so there might be food, but there was no future. So God had visited his people with food, but for Naomi, God had only visited her with bitterness. And so verse 14, with great sadness, Orpah parts ways, but Ruth clung to her. You notice that Orpah's decision, it's not condemned. Once again, it is the practical choice. Her best chance was to remarry and make a life for herself with her own people in her own land. But Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi. It's, it's the word holding fast. Same word in Genesis to talk about the first marriage that Ruth holds fast to Naomi. 
Verse 15, Naomi urges Ruth, See, your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. It's noteworthy that Naomi sees no point for Ruth to stay with the Israelite God, but rather she should go back to her own Canaanite gods. You notice the perspective there that Naomi may be stuck with the God of Israel, but Ruth, she still has options. Maybe things would go better for her. And then we get the famous line, if you know the story of Ruth, this is probably the one you know. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so they go back. In verse 19, the whole town is stirred, and there's this hint at the end of the verse, almost like Naomi is unrecognizable. The women say, is this Naomi? Apparently, this time away hasn't been so kind to Naomi. But deeper than any physical change is the inner spiritual change that Naomi describes. Verse 20, she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Often in the Old Testament, and actually in the Bible, we see God changing a name of a character to really uh, communicate a change of identity. In this case, Naomi does it to herself. The narrator doesn't pick it up, actually. He doesn't continue with it. It's just here. It's just her self-identification. She used to be Naomi, pleasant, but now she is Mara, bitter. She went away full, but came back empty. Nothing else to contribute, to give, no more hope. For Naomi, her story is over. Do you get the backdrop? Scene one, a story about going from full to empty practically hopeless. And before we move on, I just want to notice what this looks like. For Naomi, she has continued on with life, and she's even done so with some good theology. You notice that she understands the sovereignty of God. He is in control. He gives and he takes away. She even seems to be willing to live under God's sovereignty. She's bitter and hopeless, but she doesn't curse God. She's not condemned for her perspective. Instead, we just see her carrying on, not hoping for anything good. No kindness from God requested or expected. And isn't this what it looks like sometimes, being practically hopeless? Perhaps not despairing, not walking away from the faith, just no expectation for God to do anything outside the ordinary. I think this is what we see in Naomi's response to Orpah and Ruth. Even though they were attached to an Israelite family, there was no future for them in Israel. Better to stay in Moab. Better to stay in Moab than return to where God was visiting his people. I think we see a similar thing going on with Orpah, actually. She does do the practical thing. We probably wouldn't expect anything different. If Naomi didn't think it would be worth her to return to the promised land, why would Orpah? I think this is the other side of being practically hopeless. It's being hopelessly practical. Always making the practical decision, what makes sense from a human perspective. Decisions based on what the way it has always been. It's just the way it is, and so you get on with it. 
not seeing or at least not living based on the potential or promises of God. And so you can imagine this future for Orpah. Perhaps she did go on to remarry and have a family and make a life for herself, but she didn't do it with the God of Israel. She didn't do it with his people in the land of promise. And then, of course, there's Ruth. You know there's more to her story, and so we keep reading. Verse 22, say, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so they returned, and we have a couple, a couple hints, a couple precursors of what's going to happen here. You see, Ruth the Moabite returned. How is that possible? She wasn't an Israelite, but perhaps we're starting to see something of her true identity. And that final line of chapter 1, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And so what time is it now? Perhaps a time of filling. All right, so before we move on, just to make sure we're kind of all in the same point, the, the curtain is about to end for the intermission. The setting, the stage is set, practically hopeless. But we're going to find that God's grace often shines more beautiful in situations and people that seem empty. And he does it by his great kindness. All right, act two. Act two, hopefully kind that our story is driven forward as God restores hope in his kindness. And it's often seen through people who are hopefully kind. This is often how God's kindness works. It leads to and works through kind people. And so just uh, picture in your mind that one of the kind of the final scene of the Christmas movie Elf, right? Poor Santa Claus needs some more Christmas spirit to power his sleigh. And so what, what are you going to do? Well, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And so one person starts singing, and then somebody else, and before you know it, the entire crowd of New York City is singing a Christmas carol, and the Christmas cheer is spread wide. A little bit, that's how God's kindness works. It's not an economy of giving, but a community of giving. Do you know the difference? As Americans, we tend to be all into the economy of giving, and so um, there's this like winning and losing. You gain by receiving, but you lose by giving away. If you don't think you think like that, imagine how you feel when you receive a large unexpected gift. It's great, but now you've got to give something in return. You see, that's how we tend to think of giving. But in the Bible, giving is often described as sharing, not so much a transfer of ownership, but rather a sharing of enjoyment and benefit. And that's what we have going on here in the story of Ruth, that it is driven forward by this community of kindness. And so chapter 2 begins with the narrator. He introduces us to a new character, Boaz, a relative. We're told he's a worthy man, uh, not a given in the time of the judges. But despite this introduction, the storyline continues to flow through Ruth and Naomi. And so chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so Ruth, she's arrived back during the time of harvest, and so she's going to go out and glean. And basically, this is a picture of kind of day-to-day sustenance, almost like begging. And so everyone else would be at hard at work in the fields, gathering in the harvest. But for those who didn't have land, for those who were in poverty, um, there was a law in the Old Testament where they could come in behind the reapers. 
They could come in and gather up the bits that fell behind or gather up the bits around the edges. It was a way to provide for the poor. But it was day-to-day living. Glean today, eat today, and do it over and over again. It was certainly a humble job. We also know that at this time, in the time of the judges, it's also a dangerous job. Twice in chapter 2, Ruth is warned that doing this job of gleaning put her in great danger of being assaulted. But she does it anyway. And really, she does it for Naomi. And so she's stepping into the place of a husband or a son, providing for her mother-in-law. And what drives her kindness? I wonder if you noticed. She expects to find favor. The word for favor is really grace. You see in the portrait of grace? Verse 3, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, verse 4, Boaz just happened to come from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now, your uh, romantic, spidey sense might start to tingle here. Uh, Imagine Boaz looking out into the field and having this love at first sight moment as he sees Ruth. But if you're going to listen to Boaz telling the story, he noticed something different. Later on, verse 8, he speaks to Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? You see, so if you're working with the story, um, the question you're supposed to be asking, not how attractive Ruth was, but rather how gracious Boaz was. And why? Verse 11. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And so what caught Boaz's eye about Ruth? Really two things, her kindness and her faith. Her kindness to Naomi. He says, I've heard about all you've done for your mother-in-law. And her faith, that she had come to this land, to the Lord, the God of Israel, to take refuge under his wings. And so Boaz, he realizes what we might have missed, that Ruth in her, her covenant keeping to Naomi, when she when she tongue tightly clung tightly to her as if married, she was actually linking herself to God as well. That's what she had chosen when she returned with Naomi to Bethlehem. She said, your people are my people, your God, my God, covenant language. And Ruth, when she had gone out to glean that morning in kindness to Naomi, she did it because she expected to find favor from God. Why? Because she has sought refuge under his wing. It's really a beautiful picture of of Ruth nestling under God's protection like a a chick nestling under a mother's wing. 
You've probably seen a similar picture with um, videos of dogs. You know, you've got this big, beefy, strong dog and this little itty-bitty toddler, and they're training the situation to where a stranger comes up, and what happens? The dog steps right in front of the toddler. Protection. Our dog, actually not, not big or beefy, does a similar thing. And so we've noticed that when we're sitting in one of the chairs, you know, she'll come up and stand in front of us and back into us. What a weird experience. But yet when you look it up, what's happening is that it's the natural instinct of protection that it isn't in her character to protect. And Boaz, he says, that's what it's like with God. That as Ruth attaches herself to Israel, she comes under his wing. And so you're starting to see this picture of God's beautiful kindness at work, even against the backdrop of darkness. That in faith, Ruth was committed to Naomi. Her kindness was driven by faith in the refuge of God. And then in faith, Boaz, who was a worthy man, beyond any romantic or physical attraction, the story never talks about that, but Boaz, a worthy man who values God's law, sees the kindness of Ruth. He knows that she has come under God's care, and so when she just happens to show up in his field, she she comes under his care. You see, it's a community of kindness. And we won't have time to read it, but Boaz, he goes on, he, he instructs his workers about how they're supposed to treat Ruth, um, he goes into detail to say, like, as you're, as you're reaping, you're going to drop some extra food behind you so that Ruth can pick it up. Ruth is invited to share the table at mealtime, a great sign of respect and inclusion. The Moabite, who sought God's refuge, is now treated like an Israelite. In verse 17, at the end of the workday, Ruth returns to Naomi. She's carrying about an ephah of barley, so you'd have to look that up. If you look at your footnote, it's three-fifths of a bushel, okay? <clears throat> you have to look that up too, which I did. It's about 30 pounds, right? So 30 pounds. What's the point? No longer living hand-to-mouth. She has found kindness and favor, protection and provision. And Naomi, she asked in shock, where did you glean today? Ruth, the guy's name was Boaz. No idea of the significance. And here's how the chapter ends. Verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, has not, who, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so the curtain goes down. And so if you're following the story, Naomi, she has come back empty and bitter. But through the kindness of Ruth, through the kindness of Boaz... What does she start to see? The kindness of God. And it's of note, the word for kindness in this story, it's the Hebrew word hesed. We don't often kind of nerd out with the original languages here, but I think it might be worth it with this time. Um, because this word hesed, hesed is so critical in the Old Testament. Almost always it's, tra- it's translated as loving kindness uh, or steadfast love. But it's this covenant-keeping love. And so when God announces himself to Moses, he says his character is such that he abounds in steadfast love. He has so much that it overflows out to others. And so in that way, it's his kindness that is the lifeblood of the story. It's really the lifeblood of, of, of the great story of what God's doing in the world. And so a worthwhile question before we move on is, is it the lifeblood of your story? What drives your life? Is it 
the loving kindness of God. One way to know is whether you live hopefully kind lives. Hopefully kind lives. Hope in God's kindness towards you, expecting him to work, refusing to believe that he has forsaken you. Why? Because he's forsaken his son. And so in that community of kindness then, are you free to extend God's kindness out? Not living as if kindness is a limited resource to be exchanged with discretion. But in God's kindness, God's story, kindness is a shared resource. It grows as it's given. And so scene two, God is still being kind to Naomi. How will it happen? Well, there's a redeemer. Somebody who might make things right. And so scene three here. Full redemption. That God's kindness and grace is seen in his commitment to fully redeem his people. And so Ruth, she finishes out the harvest season in Boaz's field. And by the time the threshing season has come, right before winter, um, we see a real softening in Naomi. She had come back to Bethlehem empty and hopeless, hopeless for herself and for Ruth. But now, chapter 3, verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And so do you see the thawing of Naomi's heart that she is opening up to the kindness of God, that now she sees potential for Ruth, a way forward that could go well. There is a redeemer, someone who could step in and restore value and dignity to the family. And so she makes a plan. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And so Ruth, she gets washed up, which wasn't a given back then, and then dressed up. And you might know this part of the story, and so you might have all sorts of ideas of of how romantic or how immoral this is. Um, But hopefully we can be careful to see what the writer is showing us, really what Boaz is telling us. So it is an intimate scene, but probably not for the reasons we think. And so verse 6, Ruth, she goes down to the threshing floor, just as her mother-in-law had said. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Get the, there's a great buildup of, of suspense here. Behold, a woman. You see, there's no scandal here. Almost certainly there would have been in a different field, but Boaz was a worthy man, and so he was shocked to find a woman at his feet. Verse 9, in the darkness of night, he calls out, Who are you? And she answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And so here's the significance. This isn't a seduction, but a proposal. Unusual, yes. Unethical, no. Ruth, she's asking for covenant marriage. Just as she had come into Israel to find refuge under the wings of God, so she now comes to Boaz to seek refuge under his wings. It's a play on words that if he would spread his garment over her, it would be as if he was spreading his wing of protection over her. And while it might have been romantic, once again, notice what Boaz sees in Ruth. Verse 10. 
He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And so in this whole kind of midnight scene, what Boaz sees is kindness. Not toward him, towards him, actually. I don't think it's kindness towards Boaz that she was willing to marry the old guy. Because he says the last kindness is greater than the first kindness. The first kindness was to Naomi. And so this must again be kindness to Naomi, that instead of finding a younger guy where she could start her own family fresh, where she had a much better chance of, of getting pregnant and having things go well, Ruth proposes to Boaz, an older man, but a redeemer of Naomi, with the hope that she could provide the heir that could ensure the family line and retain the family property. You see, this is covenant kindness. This is Ruth buying into the truth of the promise, that God's promise for his people would come through the family and through the land, and Naomi didn't have any. And so she needed to be fully redeemed. And we have the great moment in verse 11. Boaz responds, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So if you're listening carefully, you have to wonder, why would Ruth have feared? Well, maybe Boaz would have taken advantage of the intimate situation. Maybe Boaz would have refused and called out her advance. But don't fear. The Redeemer will do all that she asks. It's really a beautiful picture if you notice the subtlety that Ruth, the outsider, but one with such faith in God's kindness, comes to Boaz begging for redemption. And the answer is yes, all of it. All that you ask for. And no need to beg. Did you notice that the worthy redeemer sees the worth of the woman? It's really a great picture of what it looks like to come to Christ for redemption, that we come to Jesus as spiritual beggars, but he receives us as worthy. We come to Jesus full of empty promises, and his joy is to answer all of them to make all full. And hundreds of years before Jesus came and did it for us, God did it for Ruth as a portrait of his grace. And really, God did it for Naomi. You see, she had returned empty from Moab, but was made full in the land of promise. And so we have a bit of a, a rush onto the end here. Um, drama's not over, right? So there is still more drama in the story. I'm just going to have to summarize it for us. It Begins in verse 12. Boaz goes on. He says, yes, I'll do it all. It's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And so much of chapter 4 is, is taken up with this drama of the other redeemer. He remains unnamed, actually, in the story. Um, he's really only there to act as a, as a foil, as a way to see the fullness of the redemption that God provides through Boaz. Because the tension is whether this other redeemer is a worthy man. Will he do it all? Will it be a full redemption? And the reason that's a question is really a, a combination of, of two issues here um, in ancient Israel culture. Um, two ancient practices related to heirs and inheritance, to, to land and family. 
And so the first one is land, that if someone was, was poor, if they fell into poverty and they needed to sell their land, a close relative was supposed to step in and buy it. All right? So the, the, the poor person gets the money from the land, but the land at least stays within the family. Why? Because land was the expression of God's promise. It was your link to the promise. And so you do have to buy the land, but then it's yours, and it's really an extension of your wealth. And so in a way, buying the land is an easy ask. But the second ask is much more costly, land and family. And we've seen this, this idea before a couple weeks ago with Tamar. It's this idea of leveret marriage where if the firstborn son gets married and then dies before he can produce an heir, the younger brother, probably unmarried, is supposed to step in and marry the widow. The whole point is so that the family name and the blessing of the firstborn would be passed on. It would stay in the family. And so apparently at this point in Israel's history, this practice was extended not just to brothers, but to close relatives as well. And this second part of redemption is actually much more costly. You see, in addition to buying the field, the redeemer would also take on the responsibility of the widow. And in the event that the widow had a son, that redeemed field, it wouldn't stay in the possession of the redeemer. It would instead pass along to the widow's son. And at even greater risk, if this redeemer happened to have an inheritance of his own, but yet didn't have any other children, his inheritance would pass on to the widow's family as well. You see, the cost here is incredible. So much so that in chapter 4, it was too much for the unnamed redeemer. He was in it for the field. Field, no problem, but taking on the family, way too costly. And once again, as is the story of Ruth, it's a practical decision. He counted the cost, maybe got with his accountant, and he couldn't do it. And once again, it's not condemned. He simply drifts off, unnamed, actually. One commentator makes the point that perhaps the thing he most cared about, protecting his own family name, is the thing he loses to the pages of history. And so finally, as we come to the close, the drama is cleared. Boaz, he will step in as the redeemer. And so verse 9 of chapter 4 Boaz, he says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilon and to Malon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And in a sudden... Um, increase of action. It's almost like the scene expands so you can see longer and farther. All of a sudden, the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, it gets caught up into the great story of Israel. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You notice what's happening here? All of a sudden, Ruth is placed side by side with, with Rachel and Leah, remember the mothers of really the, the nation of Israel. All of a sudden, Boaz is placed on par with Judah, the head of the tribe. You see, all of a sudden, we're starting to see oh, maybe more is going on. And words are great. It's a nice prayer, but there's still a glaring need. I don't know if you've thought about it, but there's some difficulties here. Boaz, he's an old man, and as far as we can tell, has never had children. 
Why so? Ruth, she had been married for 10 years, apparently without having children. And so the question is, will the redemption come up short? Will Ruth not be on par with the mothers of Israel? Will Boaz be lost to history? Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. If you remember, I shared earlier that the Lord is only explicitly said to do two things in the story of Ruth. Chapter 1, he visited his people, bringing food to empty fields. Chapter 4, he visited again, bringing a child to the empty womb. And Ruth, you notice over and over again, she's Ruth the Moabite. All of a sudden, Ruth the Moabite is visited by the God of Israel. And then the crescendo to end it all, a great declaration by the women. It really brings the fullness of the redemption all together. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So real fullness of redemption that the Lord had not left Naomi without a redeemer, Boaz. The Lord had not left Naomi without a family, surprisingly, a daughter-in-law, Ruth who loves you better than seven sons, which is saying something when the whole story is driven by this question of a son. The Lord had not left Naomi without a future, a grandchild. You notice that she had come back empty and now her lap is full. It's the subtle signs of the story of really adding magic and beauty to what God has done here, that God has provided a grandchild. For her, this child would be a redeemer, a restorer of her life. For Israel, he would be the grandfather to the great King David, and for all of us, he would be the ancestor to the greatest king Israel would ever known, the Lord Jesus. And so perhaps it's fitting here at the end that in her kindness to Naomi, Ruth, she fades away, actually. Do you notice who is the son born to? Not Ruth, Naomi. Where is the son laid? Not in Ruth's lap, but Naomi. Ruth is even unnamed in the blessing of the women. She's just the daughter-in-law. But in God's kindness, we do know her name. That Ruth is remembered in the genealogy of the greater Redeemer who would bless the whole world. And so a portrait of grace. It's a special one because it's a, a portrait of God's grace and of gracious living. Very few characters in the Bible come off kind of scot-free, but Ruth and Boaz do. And so think about Christmas time here. We're in the middle of it, moving quickly to Christmas Day, and I think often we get caught up in questions of emptiness or fullness, and so sometimes worried that that space under the tree might be too empty. Will there be enough? Other times we might be worried about that space under the tree being too full. Will the young people understand how blessed they are, or will they just take everything for granted? I imagine there must have been a similar type of, of feeling when parents told their children, this story of Ruth. 
Remember, it was written during the time of King David or King Solomon, the height of the empire. Everything was going so well. It might have looked like that's just the way it is. And so you can imagine the story starting. Now, kids, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when it didn't look like we would make it, that all our hopes would come up empty. But then God, in his loving kindness, sent a redeemer to make all things full. It was a time when the judges rolled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great redemption that you have brought to us. That you have sent a redeemer, that you have not left us without a redeemer in the Lord Jesus. And in him you have made all your promises come full. So, Father, would you help us live in great confidence of that, that the storyline of our lives is really driven and empowered and filled up by the story of your loving kindness. This Christmas season, would you make us those who would live graciously, believing and sharing your kindness with you and with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.